Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. In this episode, I talk to an old buddy and fellow Irishman, Gary Lavin, founder of the supercharged, low-calorie vitamin drinks range, Fitit. Fitit currently sells in nearly 20 countries around the world, with market sales soon at 50 million euros. With a growth rate of 35% year-on-year, Fitit is the best-selling functional drinks brand in the UK, as well as being the market leader in its home market of Ireland. I've known Gary and followed Vitted's progress for over 15 years now, and what really intrigues me about this story is that most of this growth has been unlocked over the past five years. I'm also really inspired by Gary's sheer honesty about mistakes he thinks he's made and the sheer doggedness that has been necessary to get the business to where it is today. Here's our interview earlier this week, where Gary takes us through what the drivers of this recent transformational growth have been, how he recognised them, and what he'd do differently if he had to start over. Gary Lavin, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks, Fiona. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You're very welcome. It's really good to have the opportunity to catch up on how you've been doing. So since the last time we met, you've taken Vitit from strength to strength, and now you're selling nearly 20 million bottles a year, and you've recently taken the UK by storm. For those of our listeners who may not know all about Vitit, tell us about the product, the range, where it's sold, who buys it, and, and everything we need to know. Yeah, sure. It's um, a low-calorie uh, range of vitamin drinks. We don't add any sugar, uh, vitamins, juice, water, and teas. Years ago, when I was creating the product, I used to see people on treadmills, and they'd be on there for half an hour. And I knew um, from my background in sports that you'd burn approximately 180 calories, maybe 20 grams of sugar while you were on a treadmill, and they'd jump off and take a sports drink. So that was kind of my inspiration. I was just like, why are people drinking all the sugar? So that was a big driver for me. So I spent two years in research trying to find low-calorie uh, ways of delivering it. And uh, yeah, I came up with the brand name Vitus. It was actually uh, 19 years ago. So it's going to be 20 years um, this time next year. So it's been a long, a long road and a, a, a big and interesting struggle, let's say. And we'll talk more about that in a minute because it really is one of the things, like I said in the introduction, about your story that fascinates me the most. But just to talk a little bit more about the brand. So it's a really brightly coloured range of drinks. What size, what format are the drinks in? Yeah, they're 500 ml. Product really belongs in fridges in a lot of stores. We're not a kind of a take-home product. We like to own the healthy space. And one of the things about, you mentioned the bright colours, it's uh, one of the real drivers for consumers that when they walk in, we have a rainbow of colours on the shelf and uh, people are really attracted to that. I think that's really important when people are putting packaging together that I think it's, it's uh, you probably know more about this than I would, but it's uh, I think it takes 0.4 of a second for a consumer to decide what they want on the shelf. Sure. And for little brands like us, we don't have budgets to tell people, you know, it's low calorie, it's low sugar, et cetera, et cetera. So you really just got to have a real pop of color. And uh, that's one of the one of the drivers for our consumers, I think. So are you quite an impulse purchase? I mean, and do most of your sales come from impulse channels or major malts and major grocery stores? Yeah, a, a little bit of both. We, we, we built it when I uh, built the business in Ireland. Um, I didn't go near any of the groceries or any of the multiples for about five years because I just felt, um, you know, I wanted people getting out of cars. So I went to garages. Uh, I wanted people in your local 7-Eleven type star shops. And at the time in Ireland, we didn't really have a grab and go uh, shelf um, in our in our local Tesco stores. It's That has changed since then. We've now taken a, a run from the UK. So 
I built it there and then we spread it out amongst uh, supermarkets. And then from that point, um, once we were profitable, which let's be honest, took a hell of a long time for my company to be profitable. Um, I was making a lot of mistakes. <clears throat> but then we, um, from there, we went uh, into the UK and we've been doing very well indeed in multiples in the last four or five years. Yeah, I mean, your progress in the UK is amazing. I think I read that you are the best-selling drink in some of the UK's biggest stores or the best-selling functional drink in some of the UK's biggest stores. Tell us about that. Yeah, I moved to the UK about seven years ago, spent five years over there just banging on the doors. Um, most of the retailers told me to go away. They didn't, they'd never heard of us. But um, I think for a new brand coming up, you need to put a stake in the ground somewhere. So we had great sales in Tesco in Ireland. And I used back of that to go to a lot of retailers in the UK. And uh, one of the first retailers that really embraced us was Sainsbury's. And uh, when they saw our rate of sale, which um, on average is 100 units per store per week, and in the summers, um, like last summer when it was really, really hot, um, we were selling on average 167 units per store. So the rate of sale was really incredible. So off the back of that, I, I, we, we got Tesco, Marks & Spencer, um, a few other retailers like that. And just last November, we became the best-selling functional drink in a UK grocery. I mean, that's just amazing. And, you know, you're playing against competitors such as uh, Pepsi, uh, Coke in terms of their vitamin drink offerings. And you're here you are, a small drinks brand from Ireland beating them. I mean, what is it about your brand proposition and your product proposition that is allowing you to do that, do you think? Well, it's partly the brand and it's partly uh, my competitive nature. I, I don't like to lose. So I take it personally when I see another um, company's brand on the shelf. I really do. It's like, I always say, it's like someone calls my child ugly. I, you know, when I see when someone doesn't take the product <laughs> or doesn't put it on their shelves. So I really take it personally. So I feel like I care more than a guy who's clocking in and clocking out of a company. That's kind of the personal side of it. With regards to the product, um, I spend six to nine months on every one of our flavors. I back and forth to our taste house in Germany. Um, I'm really, really particular. Um, and I always like to say that I have a middle of the road Irish taste palette. So, you know, my taste buds are not that exotic. So if I like something, I think, you know, most of the public will like it. And it's proven right so far. So what we just do is we focus on getting the flavors right first. We put as many vitamins and teas in it as we possibly can. That's the product. The simplistic way of this product is it has to taste really good. And then obviously with the packaging, it has to look really good. And then when people taste it and read the back of it, then it's got to be really good. So there are three basic formulas that are really quite simplistic, but to get them all together um, is kind of a magic unicorn, I guess. Yeah, well, it certainly looks great on shelf and tastes great. Um, and I, you know, what really strikes me about your your range when I see it on shelf is the standout because of the bright colours. And I think in a textbook, in a marketing textbook, you know, vitamin water and really bright colours, you'd probably think twice about doing that. But it works, to be honest. Um, and I invite any of our listeners to look at your website to see what the packaging and the products look like. They just look great if they haven't seen them in store. Thanks. Yeah. And sometimes uh, a couple of times I was in Holland recently with a big retailer and they said to me, oh, I don't like your colours. And I said, with all due respect, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what the, <laughs> what the customers think. He didn't, he didn't take that too well. But, you know, I, I have sales to back that up yeah. and all of our colors are all natural. So, for instance, in our pink colored product, which is a bright pink colored product, it's actually purple potato color. Okay. And in our lean and green product, it's um, it's plant extract. So even though the products look very bright, they'll catch your eye. And sometimes people are like, oh, that's way too bright. But 
in general, I think the customers are drawn towards it. And, and the proof is in the sales figures. So when you talk about 100 units per store per week, you know, and you're saying that that's obviously a really high rate of sale, is that against other functional drinks or is that drinks in general? What's the benchmark in the drinks category? Yeah, it's, it's drinks in general. In the UK, we did some testing recently and we outsold nine lines of Lucozade. Um, We outsold, so a lot of mainstream brands. We outsold uh, some brands of Innocent. We outsold um, all of the functional drinks that are owned by Coca-Cola, so vitamin water. We outsold them by 400% on the UK shelves. I mean, this is amazing. Yeah, we've, we've lots of um, we've lots of marks like that, that every time we get to a stage that we can outsell somebody. And um, the most recent one was we were outselling uh, Red Bull sugar-free. Um, so one, one day, hopefully, we'll outsell full, full Red Bull, and that would, be a, that would be a nice marker. You're going to have salespeople who are currently in the market for jobs, for roles, knocking on your door after this, because it's kind of like every <laughs> sales guy or girl's dream, because they can go in with a little you know, three slide PowerPoint presentation with all these figures in it. And, and any retailer is going to I mean, want to take this on because there's so much proof and so much evidence there. You'd think so. But the retailers can be an unusual bunch, not to disparage any of them. But sometimes I go in with these figures and we have facts and figures. And uh, the odd retailer in the UK just looks at us blankly and kind of goes, yeah, well, you might outsell those guys, but um, I'm not so sure ourselves. And they're just you know, they walk away. So one, one of the weaknesses I have as a business is I never had any history working for Coca-Cola or Tesco or any of the large companies. And that's probably one of the reasons why it took so long to break even and actually make money out of the company. But it's also a, a downfall for us that I just don't have the connections. Um, so when I go to the retailers, it's, you know, the first time I don't have much history with them, right. even though we've been around for 20 years, but I've only been in the UK for five years. So I'm kind of a new guy coming in trying to tell them you know, how, that we outsell all of the big guys. And it's it's a story that a lot of the time they don't believe, but, you know, now we have figures for it. So it's about building credibility, I suppose. Definitely. And and I think, let, let's go back to that, actually, because we talked about the fact that, you know, you're doing so well and you're you're going to be showing market sales of nearly 50 million in the next year or so. And most of this growth has really only happened in the last five years. You know, one of the subjects that this podcast wants to explore in depth is what creates that transformational growth. And sometimes it happens from the very beginning with companies, say, like Huel, where, you know, it's zero to 70 million in four years. Or sometimes it's a bit more slow, like you've been around for 20 years, but it's only in the last five that we're seeing this incredible growth. What have you been doing differently, Gary, in the last five years? You know, we kind of like to think of ourselves as a startup now. I mean, we grow at a minimum of 30 to 35 percent a year. Some people ask me, what was I doing for the first 10 years uh, of this growth plan? But I was I was learning and just not giving up. I think that's a really important point of it. I could have given up at, at any point. You know, all these mini failures are just um, steps on a ladder to actually reach success in my book. But some of the things we were doing was building a story so that a larger distributor will take heed of. Um, I mean, you know, lots of young brand owners will be listening to this going, yeah, I can't get a, a retailer to listen to me or I can't get a distributor to listen to me. And what we always do is we put stakes in the ground. So, you know, if we're with a small distributor and we're doing really well, then the medium distributor will take us Then the next guy. So what happened in Ireland and how we built enough growth and cash to, to be able to move on was we were with one distributor and uh, we were doing 3,000 cases a month, which I thought was okay. And then I realized I got some data from a friend of mine who worked in the UK. And he actually told me, he said, God, it's a pity what's happening with it. And I said, well, like we're growing at 30, 40% a year. And he says, no, no. He said, your store count is down 20% this year on last year. So when I realized that, I realized that our brand was doing well and our distributor wasn't. So I switched to distributor. 
and our new distributor, um, who was the Red Bull distributor at the time in Ireland, ended up doing 33,000 cases, more than tenfold, literally overnight. So one month we went from 3,000 to 33,000. So that's down to distribution. How did you feel when you saw that? Um, it was a lot of validation on what we had done. You know, I, I had changed packaging many times. I had uh, been thrown at a retailers many times. I had been told that this product will never work many times. So it was it was really nice validation to finally get to a stage where the company was was stable and that all of my telling people that it would work and no one believing me that finally got to a stage where, yeah, this is, we're onto something here. So, so the first key driver of that transformation then was about getting the right distributor. Yeah, definitely. You could have the greatest product in the world, the greatest packaging in the world, but if you don't get it on the shelf, you don't get sales, it's over. And, you know, I, I myself used to drive up and down Ireland staying in bed and breakfast trying to get the, um, for our UK listeners, I don't know if they have bed and breakfast in the UK, but they do, they do. <laughs> place, Oh, do they? Okay, that's good. Okay. So it's a, it's a great way to, um, you know, you don't have to go home that night. You can stay um, out in the sticks in Ireland, as they say, and spend a night there and then go on to a new town. And uh, so I was selling the product pretty much door to door to build a success off the back of that. So, okay. So w- when you learned this about having the right distribution partner, were you able to then kind of take that learning and apply it in the other markets you've gone into? I mean, do you actually look for a particular type of distributor now, whereas before you just maybe took whoever you met? Yeah, I used to take anyone who was willing to take our products. Now we, we get approached a lot and um, we don't necessarily go with all or any of them. It's 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 hard, you know. Sometimes you see a really big distributor um, who end up just being box movers and uh, and not a brand builder. We really need brand builders. So a lot of the time, I would prefer if a, if a distribution company had five guys who were really in, interested in the product and who had access to retail, as opposed to a massive company whose turnover of hundred million and uh, just have no real personal interest in it. So it's just a real feel. It's kind of a suck it and see kind of thing. For instance, in Belgium, which is one of our big growth markets at the moment, the distributor, rightly so, for four years was telling me that he didn't like my products and uh, he didn't like how it tasted. And again, I use my line, it doesn't really matter with all due respect what you think, it's what the public thinks. So anyway, for four years, I was after him and uh, he ignored me the whole time. And then I sent him an email one day and I said that we are in France, Germany, Austria and Holland. So I said, if this is a world war, you'd have to put your hands up. So uh, <laughs> so he actually sent me back a smiley face and said, right, I'll meet you next week. So I flew over to Belgium and he took it on against his better judgment. But uh, that was in their first year. They sold a million bottles last year and they sold 1.8 this year. That's amazing. Which is actually faster than Red Bull did for the first two years of them. So he's delighted that I pushed him so hard. Do you think there's something about market readiness here? You know, given that you've been around for 20 years and we're seeing all this growth in the last five years, were consumers or shoppers potentially and even the retailers not emotionally ready for this type of product? Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I always say this, look, I'm no genius. I keep things very simple uh, with the product and uh, the consumers definitely came to meet what we had created a little bit ahead of time. You know, the first 10 years, yes, we were selling a low calorie, low sugar drink people weren't really switched on to the low sugar. And even though it was a driver for me, I never knew whether the marketplace would really be into low sugar products. But now, obviously, we realize that sugar is responsible for a lot of the obesity problems that we have and that the human body can only process 25 grams of sugar a day. And if there was one thing I would love to get Irish and English schools to teach, it's just one hour. You know, it would help so much, so many uh, kids' problems. If we had one hour every year for schools and just tell them how to read the back of packs 
it just amazes me some of the things that kids consume even today when we are very knowledgeable um, with our sciences. We know exactly how many sugars you can take. But yet every day kids are eating you know, all of these bars of chocolates and drinking all of these sugary drinks. And you know, they're having terrible obesity and health problems and going forward in life. And I just love to just teach them really, some really simple way of reading the back of packs. Well, that's a great purpose and a great mission. I'm sure something that you'll be able to look at in the future. Tell us about team. So in the last five years, have you done anything differently in terms of people? Has that made any impact on your transformational growth? Yes, it has. When we started, um, there was just myself, my business partner, Ian. I started the the company in 2000. Uh, Ian came in about seven years later. And uh, from from that point, probably about five or six years, it was just the two of us. Then I hired um, a girl who's now become our national sales manager. At the time, she was my tennis partner. And it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing uh, the type of people that you'll hire. And she is, uh, she's our international sales manager now. And she's uh, an absolute flame for the business. But yeah, in the UK, for instance, um, we have an incredible team. Uh, I'm really proud of those guys. There's um, a team of five guys. We went originally with distributors in the UK and we found that they just weren't really championing our brand. So we set up our own team over there and they've been working hard for the last four or five years. We don't really have a specific formula. Like for instance, we have um, one guy in South Africa running distribution and we're just hiring now in Australia, um, getting a brand manager. But you're taking on your own people, basically. Oh yeah, very much I mean, that's the difference in in the last five years. Before it was you and a whole load of distribution partners, whereas now it's you and local teams and distribution partners. Yeah. And what I like to say to people when I'm hiring them is I say, look, I have a certain break-even figure. Again, I like to keep it really simple. I have a certain break-even figure. By six months, if you don't hit that, unfortunately, you're not, you're not for us. Um, I also don't hover over their shoulders. Nothing more annoying than your boss onto you 24-7 telling you where to go, what to do. So I basically give them certain KPIs and I would basically say, right, you know, I'll talk to you in two weeks' time. Come back to me and show me your results. And it gives people a sense of entrepreneurship that if they fail, you know, they probably are in the wrong industry and they'll have to move on and go somewhere else. But if they succeed, it's them that succeeded. And there's a certain amount of pride for that. And uh, it's great to see young people who we hire, uh, for instance, our team in the UK, you know, getting wins, getting products across the line. And they know that's been 100% them. And I've really had nothing to do with it except for create the product. Well, that's lovely. That's really nice and quite refreshing, actually, too. So so we've got in terms of drivers of transformational growth, we've got you worked out that actually you needed a particular type of distributor. You worked out that you needed a team on the ground in key markets, which was something that we found in, with Goo. You realise that the market actually maybe wasn't ready enough early on, and that's why it was much slower early on. Tell us about focus. I mean, I remember back in the day you launched a bar version of the drink. Is that still around or have you kind of pulled back in the focus to be on the drink? Yeah, it's not. No, I mean, we tried a couple of different things and we're not giving up. um, But our main driver is our 500 mil. So we are now very focused on that. One of the things we've decided to do is that you know, if we create a new product, it might give us 3% growth. Whereas if we go into a country and make a success, we could get 7 to 8% growth out of it. So that's kind of where our focus is. We do have a lot of NPD in the background, but until we become, you know, a monster player in six or seven countries, I really don't think there's a need for that. I mean, in Ireland, where we run 73% of the health market and health and functional markets in the country, um, that's just with our, uh, and we're growing at 30 to 35% a year at the moment. And we've been in Ireland for 20 years now. So when I see that, 
I really don't think that there's a need to start bringing out more complicated uh, newer versions of it. Sure. You've basically decided that your strategy is about uh, closing distribution gaps, driving distribution. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we've we've found in retailers from Australia to Belgium to Ireland, even slightly in some small areas in the US, that when we get Vitted on the shelf, it sells. Um, it's just getting it on the shelf, which sounds like an easy thing to do, but it's really not because you can imagine any large retailer is probably taking 100 phone calls every two days uh, with new brands coming at them. So, you know, you have to be able to prove to them that you can sell better than those other guys. And that really is the challenge for us. It's just getting on shelf. We know once we get it on shelf, we have a certain rate of sale and it never fails. And that is that is just magic. It's the magic gold dust that every single consumer packaged goods company is looking for and every retailer is looking for. I mean, what I find really difficult to understand is if you've and, you know, in episode four, I was talking to my old professor who was kind of bemoaning the fact that big consumer goods packaged goods companies can't seem to get their act together in terms of innovation. And what I don't understand is, is if you've got players such as Coca-Cola or Pepsi and they've got vitamin waters that have been around for years and years and years, why aren't they the ones winning? What is the difference between your product proposition and your brand proposition and theirs? Because they've got so many resources behind them. Surely they should be the ones winning. Yeah, it's got to be a bit of care. I mean, products that were really relevant 15 years ago are not relevant today. So if you take Coke's vitamin water, for instance, and that's just our current, you know, that, that was our target in the UK. We, we outsell them now in the UK. But at the time, you know, it came from the US. It was sold for $4.5 billion. And it was a very successful product in the US. It never really traveled that well. So there was no one really in the UK to ha- take a look at that brand, for instance, and to change it up and to fit it into a, a European model. And then the packaging has gone a little bit old as well. And so not just to focus on that particular one, you know, the large companies then will buy the next big brand that's coming up, um, they'll buy it and it'll be relevant for a couple of years, but they don't know if it's going to go from, if it's going to travel from America to Europe and still sell at the same rate. Or, you know, are, are they missing the slight innovations that they need to keep doing that the founders uh, were all about innovation? Okay, you're living it. Yeah, if they buy in a new brand and the founders leave after about two years, they've lost that kind of real love and real need to grow the brand. Okay. And that's what we have. You know, we have, I, I have a serious competitive nature and I just want to beat other brands, you know, into submission on the shelf. That's kind of what we're all about. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so the sheer doggedness of, you know, everything. I remember years ago when we used to have that little group, I remember our dinner group in Dublin of food entrepreneurs. And you'd be telling us a story about how you had a particular distributor in Dublin and you was kind of crawling along until you decided, you know, shoot this, I'm going to sit in the van with the sales guys and I'm going to pretend I work for this distributor and I'm going to bang on the doors to find out, you know, are they actually trying to sell in the way they say they're trying to sell? And what is the response they're getting from the different food service outlets that you were you were focusing on at the time? And you said that that was a real key for you in terms of learning about what your customer wanted. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so in, in disguise anymore. But yeah, I still to this day will, uh, you know, if, if I'm in a new country, like I'm, we spent three months in Australia launching and I sat in the cars pretty much five days a week in the blistering heat with the air conditioning on uh, with all the reps. Because, you know, they're the guys that are going to be in the cold face when I'm back in Ireland in the freezing cold. And they're the guys that are going to be selling the products. So I think not only do they need to know how you sell the product, they need to like your product and they need to like you as well. Because... You know, the owner of Coca-Cola is not sitting in the van with them. So hopefully they'll sell more of mine than they would of Coca-Cola. So I think it's really important. I think a lot of founders and CEOs get to a stage where 
you know, they're making a lot of money and they get comfortable and they don't think that they need to do that. But I believe that if I'm out on the streets meeting um, shop owners and meeting my customers, that um, I learn a lot more than I would um, sitting at a desk and watching YouTube reruns. That's really, really inspiring. And it's funny because when I was I was talking recently in Paris at Cantor's 50th birthday in France, and one of the things we were talking about was founders and their followers, and that most of the companies showing transformational growth in, in food and in beverage seem to have, certainly before they're bought out, they have this founder that is really kind of, you know, inspirational and charismatic and walks the street. And as a result, he builds up this huge following amongst his team who, who almost bask in the glow of loving the person and, and feeling a huge amount of respect for them, you know. Um, do you get on well with your teams around the world? I like to think so. I don't know if anyone really loves their boss as much as they say they do. Um, I've certainly never loved anybody I worked for. Um, yeah, I mean, look, one of the things I did in the UK to, to get the product right was um, I jumped on a moped in freezing cold back in 2014 and called into Tesco stores to make sure that my product was on the shelf besides the, the then leader, Vitamin Well, and because the buyers at the time didn't think that we would sell well enough and they didn't think that we'd be, uh, sell well enough in the fridge. And what I found out from doing that was that we were actually 33% of the functional drink sales between us and 42 other competitors. So that kind of stuff you're never going to find out in the boardroom. You know, I, I, I spent two months driving back and forth, you know, up to St. John's Wood, and then driving into town and getting snowed on, rained on, everything. But what I found was that we were the best-selling product on the shelves in Tesco, and Tesco didn't know that. So when I got that research, which I don't know any other way I would have got that. You couldn't have afforded to buy the data. Yeah, well, you know, the data wouldn't have been there as well because we were listed with Tesco down the back of the shelves. They weren't listing us in the front shelves. Okay. So the front is where we sell seven times the amount of we would in the back. So I was saying we need to be in the fridges and the buyers just didn't listen to me. So when I got that data and showed it to them, it was kind of an aha moment for them as well. And I used that data then to, to get listing with them. And I never would have found that out had I not you know, frozen myself near to death in December in London. <laughs> but it was a, le- a good learning process. I know, it's it's fabulous. It's really amazing to hear. And I'm sure there's going to be many big bosses of firms listening to this and hopefully being inspired to do the same. You know, we're, we're in, in big companies, whenever it was, I was in Goo, Goo got bigger towards the end, but Nestle and any of the companies I consult with, they're always talking about, you know, how many days a month should our people get out to store? And when you ask for a show of hands in, in a workshop, the last time people were out in store in inverted commas was maybe three months ago and they might get a half a day every two or three months, but there's just no way that's the bosses doing it. It's probably, you know, the category managers, the brand managers, even the category controllers. It's it's very little that people actually get the time to get out in store. So I think it's really, really inspiring that you spend your time doing that. Yeah, thanks. I, I Actually, an interesting story on that is um, I met with the uh, young entrepreneurs just today about three hours ago and I was just giving them a bit of free advice um, on you know where I went wrong and where I went right etc and um, so I said to them I said how many stores are you in and they said 200 and I was like do you ever get up off your bleep and they were looked at me and they were like well why and I said the most important thing you can do is sell I said if you want to quadruple your turnover wouldn't that be nice and they said yeah well I said well in three months you can get into another 800 stores like that's how simple it is Stop designing products, stop going on social media and, and you know telling everybody how great you are. The only way you're going to succeed in a business is get in a car, brand it up, drive around the country, stay in B&Bs and get your turnover up. That's it. So at the end of the conversation, I said, I want a phone call 
in a month's time and I want to know how many stores they're in. So they, That's brilliant. They, they went off. Uh, hopefully um, they'll, they'll, they'll nail it because they've got a fabulous product. Now, let's talk about social media. So when you enter a new market, what does your marketing plan consist of? Yeah, well, outdoor is dead. So, um, you know, even though a lot of the larger companies do it. So for two reasons. Number one, we can't afford outdoor. And so we have to be really clever with what we do. So we do, we have a social media team and a really smart marketing team here in Dublin. And really, it's great. It's a great way for young businesses now to target people. So for a much lower budget, we can laser target people in capital cities around the world. So for instance, we've just launched in 300 Circle Ks up in Sweden. So what we'll be doing now is we'll be targeting ads. We call it dark ads. So in your Instagram stories, our target market is 18 to 35, 60% women. So what we'll do is we'll target that that demographic and we'll also add in maybe they like yoga or they're into health, etc. So they will see nice, clean, branded image um, coming up a bit hit and basically saying, you know, something like you don't need sugar with vitamins or something like that. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's an incredible way to target. So we're currently, um, all of our marketing spend goes into social media. So we're currently targeting people in Abu Dhabi, um, Dubai, London, Glasgow, Manchester, Stockholm, you know, all of these capital cities, Sydney, all around the world. And that's where we get a lot of our return from. And what about a sampling? Yeah, sampling is there as well. It's it's probably maybe 20% of our budget versus 80% of social. So, you know, first of all, we, there's no point in doing marketing or sampling. Sounds really obvious again, but there's no point in doing any of that and spending all this money if you're not in enough stores. So I think to being in Ireland, for instance, if you really want to make a mark and spend money, you've got to be in a thousand stores. There's no point in spending money on social media and this kind of stuff if people can't get your product. And there's a couple of infamous cases in Ireland where there's one beer company and that launched about three years ago and they spent six million euros on on promoting a brand they had big outdoor campaign etc but you couldn't buy the product any in any store so funnily or any pub so funnily enough it failed so these really obvious things that you would think would be really obvious to small companies like us who don't want to lose money they're actually not that obvious to the larger companies yeah it's amazing isn't it so what does the future hold for Vitit? I mean, what's your ambition for the business now in terms of size or markets to enter? Yeah, we're, we're kind of in a fun space in that we are self-funded. We've never taken a penny from anybody. So we can really only grow at 30, 35% a year. And so we have a nice controlled growth. And it's starting to, like, you know, obviously when we started, 30% of nothing is still nothing. But now we're getting to a stage where 30% actually means something. And... Uh, so we're in a really nice controlled growth growth stage. The UK grew at 68% for us last year. There's still a hell of a lot of growth in the UK. Um, and that's all down to distribution. You know, there's potential to be in 20,000 stores in the UK and we're only in 4,000. So we wow. see really big growth there. And uh, we see a lot of growth in Belgium and Holland. Um, Ireland, le- less mad growth. It's um, not as manic in Ireland now because we are quite a mature product here but the next three years we'll probably see 30 35 percent growth year on year and when we run out of places to grow and we'll just try and get into another country it's a big world out there you know so what's that going to bring you to 100 million euros in market in market sales in the next three four years yeah yeah i i think market value will probably get to 100 million within three years i think that's amazing, Gary. Congratulations. You know, yeah, I really thanks. hope that happens for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just, you know, I don't want to sound arrogant, in it, but I don't see any reason why it can't because now you know, we've proven in small scales uh, in every country our rate of sales. So it's a multiplier effect. So again, it's just down to getting, yeah. getting distribution. And uh, we, we've put in 
a lot of groundwork to get it there. It's almost 20 years now. So uh, if it wasn't doing something, I think I'd, be, I'd have to get a real job. <laughs> <laughs> one final question, which I think is quite a, a topical one right now. Obviously, there's a huge consumer interest and awareness and, and a backlash around anything that's in plastic. You guys are currently in plastic bottles. How are you mm. going to cope with that in the future? Yeah, it's it's a real hot topic for us, has been for the last couple of years. Within the next six months, we are going to 50% recycled plastic. And uh, then after that, within another six months after that, the other 50% will be biosourced. So we won't have any new virgin plastic in the product at all. It will all be 100% recyclable. And we're also looking at a corporate social responsibility um, bit piece as well, which we'll be announcing before Christmas. So it's it's something that, you know, we want people to enjoy the product without um, feeling any sort of guilt that they're, you know, doing any damage to the environment. So, and we want to do something positive. So, not only will we be doing that, we'll also be putting something back in. So we're, we're just looking at a few different ways of doing that now. Okay, well, that's great stuff. Uh, final, final question, because I know I already said that, but this is an important one. What one thing would you do differently if you were starting out again? I would have gone and worked for Coca-Cola. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I made a lot of mistakes. I was kind of young and, and full of guff, and I thought that I could you know, conquer the world with zero experience. And uh, I had a lot of failures and I learned from those. But I think had I worked for a larger company, um, I would have learned from their mistakes on their dollar. And then maybe I wouldn't have gone broke twice and lost my house and my car and all that, which is probably another podcast full of, full of stories <laughs> <out> with that. <laughs> but yeah, I would, I, I would have gone working for somebody else and learned, learned on their dollar. Yeah. So any young entrepreneur out there who's thinking, how the hell am I going to make this work? This is harder than I thought. Maybe something to consider is, do I do this, you know, at another time or do I do something different at another time and go off and learn from somebody else? Yeah, it, it depends on the age. You know, I'm not sure I would have had um, all that courage and bluster had I had, a you know, a couple of dependents, a wife and a kid that I have now. Um, I think, you know, if you're young, just go for it. Um, you know, you can always get somebody somewhere to produce samples for you and just go out and sell it. Um, I, I think... Uh, my own reasoning, whether it was right or wrong, I just about got enough uh, points in, in to go to college. And I didn't go to college because I didn't want to end up in that circle environment where you get a job. Uh, so you go to college, you learn something, you get a job and you stay and then you become dependent on the money. I figured that I'd need to have a little bit of hardship to get the lifestyle that I wanted. So, um, yeah, I just didn't realize it would take 10 or 11 years to break even. But it, it you know, took a lot of work. But that was my reasoning, whether it's right or wrong. You know, I'm not here to tell people not to go to college. But I think had I gone and worked for someone for a year or two, I think I would have um, probably skipped out 10 or 11 years of not breaking even and maybe knocked about six years off that. It would have probably been a lot easier. Well, listen, Gary, it has been absolutely super to hear your story, warts and all. And you know, it's really inspiring to hear how you've overcome all of the challenges you faced and just to really feel the confidence that there are bosses out there who still sit in cars with with people for three months and call into stores and, and understand it from the grass roots up. So you're obviously doing a great job of identifying all the things that work in the business and you've seen this transformational growth in the last five years. And I wish you the very best in the months and years to come that that continues. Will you come back and tell us in a few months how you're getting on or maybe next year and what you've learned along the way? Certainly, Fiona. I'd be delighted to, yeah. I'll have, I'll have a few more stories about riding in cars by then. 
We'd love to hear them. So thank you so much, Gary, and talk to you again soon. Thanks very much for having me, Fiona. That's great. Cheers. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.